Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Ship show. Well, as expected, earlier today, the Federal Reserve decided not to raise interest rates. They left them unchanged. So the next rate hike is likely to come when Powell takes the reins at the Fed. Janet Yellen is now leaving. Uh, she got out of Dodge. You know, this is the second Fed chairman to be able to pull this off because Bernanke inherited a disaster. And, you know, he got out of Dodge and so did Janet Yellen. I don't think Powell is going to be as fortunate uh, as his two predecessors. In fact, Alan Greenspan was on CNBC today talking about the bubble in the bond market, the bubble in the stock market, uh, how we're coming to stagflation, how we don't have any productivity growth. I mean, I believe that Alan Greenspan knows exactly how bad this is. See, I I think he's kind of like the Frankenstein that created this monster except neither Yellen nor Bernanke nor Powell even realize that it is a monster. I don't think any of them know enough about economics. I mean, Alan Greenspan is an Austrian-schooled and Rand guy. He's a smart guy. He certainly knows, probably knows more about economics than I do. And, and, and so obviously he can see this. I mean, I think he knows, right? He, you know, he created this thing, yet uh, the, the, the Fed chairman that succeeded him they don't understand it. These guys are clueless, right? It's like maybe he he understood all the chemicals and he made this bomb and, you know, he's been handing it. It's been moving like a baton or maybe like a stick of dynamite from one Fed chairman to another. Yet only Alan Greenspan realizes that the baton is made of dynamite. These guys don't know. And they, you know, they keep on expanding the policy, right? They're just like putting more gunpowder in the, in the, uh, in the dynamite. Because they believe this Keynesian nonsense. Greenspan doesn't believe any of that. And so these guys have no idea what they're dealing with. Or maybe they're like, you know, the original Frankenstein movie. You got that blind man who's there. And, you know, Frankenstein, the monster shows up. And, of course, he's blind, so he can't see him. So he has no idea that it's a monster. And it's kind of like, you know, this is Yellen or Powell. They, they, they're so blind because they, have, they, they don't understand economics that they can't see the policy for what it is. 
But I think Greenspan sees it. He can't just come right out and say it. You have to read between the lines because, you know, he's still trying to protect himself and, you know, the credibility or the image of, of the Federal Reserve. So he's not going to start trashing, uh, you know, the people who are running it. But I, you can tell that he knows that this is not going to end well. But, you know, Janet Yellen, she probably has no idea that she's getting out of Dodge. You know, I, I and, um, you know, if you look at the, the, the final statement that they have, Everything is great, right? Everything is great. The economy is on track. In fact, the funny thing is they are now anticipating that inflation will get back to 2% this year, that they finally achieved their goal, or, or they will achieve their goal this year, of 2% inflation, as if that was some kind of you know, worthwhile goal that they, that they needed to achieve. But you know, they're patting themselves on the back for having achieved this goal of 2% inflation. Of course, the Fed says that inflation will rise to 2%, and then it's just going to stay there. Like, it's going to get up to 2%, and then it's just not going to go any higher. Well, why not? I mean, what's to stop it? I mean, not the Fed. I mean, the Fed's not going to stop it. I mean, how are they going to do that? Are they going to raise rates even faster than what they're already doing? I doubt that. You know, I mean, this is pure wishful thinking to think that inflation is going to go to 2% and then stop there, like it's going to behave and do what the Fed wants. And of course, you know, if it gets to two and a half or 3%, there's no way the Fed can bring it back down because it can't get aggressive with monetary policy without completely blowing up the bubble. So it's all, you know, all bark and no bite when it comes to talking about the future potential of restraining inflation. And I have no idea why inflation would stop at, at 2%, you know, given all the money that's been created over the, you know, over the years with quantitative easing one, two, and three, right? All that money that can bid up prices. And now that the dollar is falling like a stone, right? January is over. This is the worst January for the dollar index since 1987. I mean, you know, this is a big move. In fact, the dollar is now against the yuan. It now broke into the 6.2s. It broke below 6.3. January was the weakest month for the dollar against the yuan not just the weakest january but the weakest of any month going all the way back to 1994 so we're having some pronounced right weakness in the dollar at a time where everybody is optimistic on the u.s economy right i mean you can't find a bear everybody thinks everything is great in the u.s and everybody thinks the Fed's going to hike rates three or four times this year and that they're going to finally shrink their balance sheet, even though, you know, they came up with the balance sheet again yesterday. It still hasn't shrunk at all in the last year. So they do a lot of talking, but there's nothing actually shrinking. But people believe that the balance sheet's going to shrink. And know what that means. By definition, you are withdrawing dollars from circulation. You are shrinking the money supply. You are reducing the supply of dollars. Well, if the supply is going down, the price should be going up, right? I mean, that's supply and demand. So you have all this good stuff that's supposedly going for the dollar, yet the dollar is tanking. I mean, this should be worrying people. You know, Donald Trump, you know, when he gave his State of the Union address, and I'm going to speak quite a bit about that, but one of the things he mentioned in his State of the Union address was that how everybody wants to invest in the U.S. right now, right? Everybody's coming to America. That's where the action is, right? This is where you want to be. Well, if everybody wants to be in America, if everybody wants to invest in America, why isn't the dollar going up? Because you can't invest in America without dollars, right? You want to buy U.S. assets, you got to pay for it in dollars. If you look at what's happening in the Forex market, it looks like the opposite is happening. Everybody wants to divest. 
in the United States. They want to get their money out of the United States. So they're selling dollars, right? They want to invest in other countries. So this this is all make believe. But in fact, you know, that's pretty much all of uh, the Trump speech, which, again, you know, he did the same thing in Davos. Everybody there, I mean, is is crazy bullish on not just the United States, but of course, the entire world, right? Because, you know, it's, it's not just confined to America. You have a lot of this optimism going on worldwide. But this is all a farce, right? So anyway, uh, Janet Yellen is gone. And now Trump's uh, man is going to come in and just, you know, the stick of dynamite is going to be passed like a baton. And, you know, it's going to blow up in this guy's hand. I, I just I just do not think that he's going to be able to finish out a term and then give it to some other sucker, right? I mean, this is it, right? The, this is the fall guy along with Trump for all of this bad policy. And, you know, still, people still think, oh, you know, higher rates are going are gonna, to are gonna help the dollar, right? Because bond yields went up again today. We made a new high in the yield on the 10-year, although by the end of the day, it dropped a bit. Well, we got up to 2754 is the new high. And then we, we fell back to 2.72. But, you know, I'm watching now. Now that people are kind of worried or actually looking at the bond market, right? They're starting to trade gold or the dollar or the stock market now off the bond market. And one of the things that everybody thinks is going to happen is, well, if interest rates are rising, you know, that's bad for gold. Or that's, that's good for the dollar. None of, this, none of these rate hikes, I mean, and these aren't even rate hikes, when bond prices are falling, that's not a rate hike. That's just bonds losing value. Yields are rising because people don't want to own these bonds. That is not good for the dollar. That is bad for the dollar. In fact, it's because the dollar is weak. That's why people don't want to own these bonds. So bonds falling is not bullish for the dollar. Right? If bond prices are falling, you want to sell your bonds. Well, you have to sell your dollars if you're a foreigner and you own U.S. treasuries, right? And you want to sell them. You're not just going to hold on to the dollars, especially when they're dropping like a stone. So you're going to sell your dollars too. But even the Fed rate hikes, it doesn't matter how many times the Fed hikes rates. None of these rate hikes are good for the dollar. All of these rate hikes were priced in years ago. That's, that's what happened in 2014, 2015. And if you go back, and I don't have the exact statistics, but if you go back to 2015 and think about where everybody believed interest rates would be today in January of 2018 or February of 2018, everybody believed that rates would be much higher, right? There were a lot of rate hikes that everybody thought was coming and they all got priced into the dollar. So what we're getting now is just too little too late. And the markets are already looking beyond these hikes because they know at some point the Fed's going to finish hiking and the markets are forward looking and they're barely looking over this mountain to see the next cuts because obviously once the Fed stops hiking, well, then they're going to start cutting. Right. And of course, they're going to do another round of quantitative easing because no matter how many times they hike rates, they're not going to get them high enough to be able to stimulate the economy with rate cuts. You know, the last two bubbles that popped the Fed was able to drop interest rates about 500 basis points in order to stimulate the economy. Well, they can't do that now. We don't even, we don't, we don't even have 150 basis points between here and zero, right? So obviously the next round of stimulus is QE4. And so the markets are barely starting to look forward to that. But that is what you're seeing when you're seeing this big drop in, uh, in, in the dollar. And the stock market too today, the Dow was up like, I don't know, 250, 260 points. And it sold off to about unch. And in fact, the S&P and the NASDAQ went negative, 
uh, as bond prices started to fall. Because initially this morning, rates were down a little bit, and then they rose later in the day. And as they did, the stock market started to go down. So maybe now, you know, the bond market is the dog uh, wagging the tail, and that's the stock market. And the stock market is finally starting to get worried. But as I said in, in my last podcast, they're not really worried. I mean, they're worried only a tiny bit because if they were actually worried and really understood the risk, the market would be tanking. And again, you you get all these people out there that I see on television when they do talk about it, you know, they look at maybe 3% as the highest it can go. It can go to four. And of course, four is not some kind of magic uh, number that is going to stop there either, because why would it stop at four? Why not five? Why not six? Why not seven? I mean, if you look at the enormity of the debt that we have, and of course, you know, you've got everybody thinking we're going to have all this economic growth, right? I mean, I mean, we're going to have to be borrowing more money to finance that growth. So why wouldn't that put upward pressure on interest rates? So people are just they don't want to acknowledge how bad it would be because nobody can get their wrap their arms around how bad it would be if rates got to five or six or seven percent. So people just want to pretend that that's an impossibility. But obviously it can happen. Right. Murphy's law. Anything that can go wrong will. I mean, that's certainly something that can go wrong when you have massive amounts of debt. In fact, you know, the Treasury came out today and announced their new, their next quarterly refunding, which was a big jump in the amount of bonds that the government's going to be selling. And another thing that they announced, if you look at the increase in the, the number or the supply that they're going to be selling, you know, the two-year and the five-year relative to the 10-year and the 30-year, what the Treasury is doing is they are increasing more the shorter end, right? One of the things that Donald Trump campaigned on was, hey, we're going to take advantage of these long-term interest rates. You know, my predecessor is dumb. He didn't lock in these low rates. He's, you know, we're going to lock in these low rates. I'm a smart guy. I know about debt. I want to lock in these low rates. Like, we're going to sell more 30-year bonds. We're not going to sell these T-bills. We're going to, we're going to save the taxpayers' money. We're going to lock in these, these low rates. Well, now that he's president, he's doing the opposite. Not only are they not locking in the low rates, he... Trump is actually shortening the maturity of the national debt. He is actually doing the opposite of what he claimed. He's doing exactly what he said Obama was doing that was bad, and now he's making it worse. He is exposing the taxpayer to even greater interest rate risk than his predecessor. I remember, you know, I I was watching a, a speech Steve Moore gave at one of these conferences. I think it was a money show. And he was up there talking about how Trump is going to is going to lengthen the maturity of the national debt. He's going to lock in these interest rates. He's going to sell a lot of 30 year bonds. And this is going to be great for the country because we're going to lock in all this debt at a low price. And I had a conversation with him. I said, Steve, there's no way he's going to do that. It's impossible because if he ever tried to do it, interest rates in the 30 year would soar. And now they wouldn't be low anymore. And of course, I was right. I knew that was impossible. What he was saying was impossible. But of course, nobody even looks at the possibility of all the outrageous, impossible things that so many people say and that so many people have to believe in order to rationalize this bubble. But let me get to uh, the State of the Union address that came out last night. I got to say, it actually wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. From the perspective of, you know, Trump bragging about how great everything was. I mean, sure, yeah, he took credit for stuff that he shouldn't have taken credit for. But I, I think he was actually more humble than what I was expecting. That I thought it was going to be over the top, uh, you know, uh, just real cheerleading, boasting of how great everything was. And it was a lot more subdued, actually, than, than what I thought. But here, here are some of the points 
that I wanted to make. First of all, of course, Trump talked about spending more money, talked about spending more money uh, on infrastructure, right? A lot more money on infrastructure. Also talked about spending a lot more money on the military. He wants to make our nuclear arsenal stronger so nobody will mess with us, right? We're never going to use it, but we're just going to make it so big that no one's going to want to mess with us. I mean, I already thought it was big enough. I mean, I don't think anybody wants to mess with the nuclear arsenal that we already have. Right. I don't know how making it bigger is going to make it any less likely. Right. I mean, do you think there's somebody who's like thinking about starting a war with us now because they think we don't have enough nukes? And if we just buy some more, oh, OK, now, yeah, now we're not going to attack the United States before. Yeah. I mean, they can only, you know, they can only blow us up a hundred times, but now that they can blow us up a thousand times. Well, now we're not going to mess with them. I mean, it's a complete waste of money. But of course, where's it going to be? Now, Trump, it's funny because he actually mentioned the, the, our enemies, Russia and China, right? We're, we're, we're building up our nukes to make sure that, you know, we keep Russia and China in check, right? It's a deterrent to deter China. The irony of it is, where is the money going to come from, supposedly, to pay for all this? Well, we got to borrow it from China, right? So we're going to borrow money from China so that we can build more nukes to make sure that China doesn't attack us. Hey, if they wanted to attack us, just don't lend us any money. I mean, not just for the nukes, just start dumping your treasuries. I mean, they don't even, I mean, they'd win the war before it even got started, right? I mean, the whole thing is preposterous that we should be borrowing money for the very people who we think are going to attack us so we can build more nuclear weapons that we don't even need. And and that's the same thing with the infrastructure. Where's the infrastructure money going to come from? And of course, you know, a lot of people think that spending money on infrastructure is going to help the economy. No, it's not. I mean, even if in spending money on infrastructure is actually a worthwhile expense, you know, and if the government is going to spend it, chances are it's not, right? They just build a bridge to nowhere. What's that infrastructure worth? It's worth nothing. But let's assume the government actually does some infrastructure spending that's actually worth it, where, where it's actually going to make us more productive, right? It actually pays for itself. It's a good investment. The, the gains are in the long run. That the benefit comes over time. The cost of financing it has to be paid up front. So initially, it's not a benefit to the economy. It is a, a drain on the economy because the economy has to finance the cost. See, everybody thinks, oh, no, that helps the economy because we're spending money. Well, but we have to spend money on infrastructure that we didn't spend on something else. See, think of it like think of it if it was your family, right? And let's say, you know, you, were, you, you had to make a big expense on your infrastructure, right? Let's say somebody here in in, uh, in 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 Puerto Rico, right? The hurricane screwed up their house, and now they have to you know repair their house. Um, but ma- now, what can they not do? Well, I I, I was going to take a vacation, but now I can't afford the vacation because I got to make these repairs, right? I got to invest in this infrastructure. Yeah, long run, there is probably going to reap the benefits of it, but in the short run, they got to give up the vacation. So, what are we going to give up? Right. If we're going to de- devote scarce resources, we don't have an unlimited amount of resources. Right. So if we're going to take resources and use them to build infrastructure. Well, then what are we going to give up? What sacrifice are we going to make? See, it's a cost benefit analysis. Here's the cost. We have to spend money and the benefit is derived over the long run from increased productivity. But the cost must be borne now. So it's all this Keynesian stuff. Oh, we're creating jobs. No, we're not. We're simply taking labor and moving it from where it would have been to infrastructure. We're taking resources and materials 
that might have been used for something else. And now we're using them for infrastructure. And as you're building it, you don't get the benefit of it, right? Whatever we're building, if we're building a road that we can't use for three or four years, well, there's no benefit of that road in the short run, but we got to pay for it and we got to give something up. So the idea that this is like a quick stimulus that's going to help the economy is uh, is completely wrong. But, you know, one of the things I want to point out are some of the things that, that Trump claims credit for. Like he talked about all the jobs that are being created uh, since he's been president as if, you know, this is some big change from the way things were under Obama. Right. Like, well, we weren't creating any jobs under Obama. And now, look, we're creating all these jobs. We created jobs under Obama. Problem was they were low paying jobs. They were part time jobs, the same kind of jobs that we're creating under under Trump. Right. That hasn't really changed. But here's the reality. If you look at job growth since Trump was inaugurated, right, job growth over the that over that year or so is running at the slowest pace since 2010. So, you know, Barack Obama was president for all those years where job growth was faster than it is now. So if job growth has actually slowed down under Trump, what's he bragging about? Right? I mean, remember, everything was horrible under Obama. Remember his commercials? It was an economic wasteland. Well, it's no different now. I mean, yes, there's more hope. People think that we're going to get out of the economic wasteland. They're wrong. There's a lot of false hope out there. There's a lot of false optimism that didn't exist. But the rest of it, you know, he said wages are finally rising. They're not rising any faster than they were rising under Obama. And I think the real wages are still falling because I think prices are rising uh, by faster. But, you know, then the government admits. Although one of the, the craziest comments probably was when he talked about trade, right? Donald Trump in the State of the Union address specifically said that for years and years, we were losing our wealth because of our trade deficits, which is true, right? We were, we were, we were selling off the farm in order to eat, right? We were selling off the cows and the chickens and all, everything that we had, and we were just importing milk and importing eggs, right? Uh, and so he says we were, we were squandering our wealth, we were losing our wealth for years and years because we were running all these trade deficits. And he said, we're finally getting that wealth back. Now, under Trump, the wealth that we lost under previous presidents, we're finally getting it back, except we're not, except we're losing wealth faster under Trump than we did under Obama, because the trade deficits have gotten much bigger ever since Trump was elected. So if we were losing our wealth because of trade deficits, and now the trade deficits are bigger than they were before, how is it that we're getting the wealth back? Wouldn't, be, we, wouldn't, be, wouldn't we be losing even more wealth even faster? Yes, that is exactly what we're doing. But men, remember I said, this is all nonsense, right? Nobody wants to deal with reality. Everybody's living in this fantasy world, this Alice in Wonderland economy, where we have this great thing. In fact, before the State of the Union address even came on, I was watching on Fox News and Kellyanne Con uh, Conner Conway was, was interviewed and she was talking about the economy. And she said that Americans were enjoying unparalleled prosperity under Trump. Unparalleled. Like we've never been this prosperous. I mean, how, how is this even possible that people can say that with a straight face? You know, Trump was elected to make America great again. And you're telling me it's already great 
Because if this is unparalleled prosperity, that means we're having more prosperity than we ever had. That would include, you know, the, the roaring 20s, right? Or, you know, the gay 90s or, you know, the, the period of time where we had the most economic growth in our history. This is even better because that's what unparalleled means, meaning there's no comparison. It's never happened before. This is the greatest prosperity ever, right? See, they, they just keep on telling this lie over and over and over again how great things are. And sure, you know, enough people believe it and you get this confidence wildly. You get the stock market going up. You get consumer sentiment going up. So maybe people buy things they shouldn't be buying. They borrow money they shouldn't be borrowing. Maybe corporations do some things they shouldn't do because they're blinded by all this, you know, crazy optimism. But then when it all comes crashing down, I mean, you, you know, now you're done. I mean, the, the, the expectation has been raised, right, so high by the Republicans and so high by Trump, right, that when it, these expectations aren't met, that's it. I mean, they destroyed the brand and now they now they're stuck. And now, you know, you're going to see, you know, a, a, a Democrats, you know, completely taking control of the government by 2020, 2021. That is why it is so dangerous for the Republicans to be the ones who are now telling everybody how great it is. See, the reason that Trump won is because he told the public the truth, how lousy it was. See, it was Hillary Clinton that was running on four more years. Right. They ha she had to pretend that the Obama recovery was real. And that voting for her was a vote to continue that recovery. Trump called her out. Trump said, this is all nonsense. This is all, the numbers are rigged. This is a fraud. This is a hoax. And the voters said, yeah, he's right. It is a fraud. It is a hoax. I'm going to vote for that guy because he's going to drain that swamp. He's going to clean up Washington, right? But now he's become everything he criticized only on a bigger scale. And this thing is going to blow up in a, in a major, major way uh, at and, and, and it's going to be a slingshot, right? The opposite effect, which is going to send uh, a socialist to the White House with a socialist Congress uh, by 2021. Now, I want to finish up again, too. In my last podcast, I talked about um, one of the ways that they, the states could, could challenge the constitutionality of the income tax would be to challenge it because, you know, the whole tax, not just the... Uh, the, the limitations, the $10,000 cap on the SALT deductions, just, you know, the, just go after the constitutionality of the tax itself because what Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, the arguments they're making are flimsy and they're never going to hold up. But there are some good arguments that they could make. And one of them I mentioned on the podcast I did Friday, which has to do with the direct tax uh, and an excise tax and the fact that the, 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 the Supreme Court has ruled that the income tax is in effect an excise tax to be in harmony with the Constitution, but it is not being levied as an excise tax. It is actually being levied as an unapportioned direct tax in a way that the Supreme Court has already ruled unconstitutional. And I think there's a good argument there. But I also wanted to point out another argument that they could make that would also hold water if it was made in a credible way. And that has to do with the voluntary nature of the, of the federal income tax. And this is a point that my father used to always make. And it's a great point. But, you know, it would always be leveled, you know, it would always be disregarded as being frivolous because it was always being made by a tax protester. But if it was made by the state of New York, right, the state of New Jersey, well, then they would actually have to address the issue. They couldn't just dismiss it as frivolous. They would actually have to deal with it. And if you actually have to deal with the issue, the issue wins as far as I'm concerned. And here, here it has to do with the, with, the, with, with the income tax being based on voluntary compliance. And anybody... Even today, if you'll ask the IRS, you know, is the income tax based on voluntary compliance? 
they'll say, yes, it's based on voluntary compliance, right? And then if you say, well, I don't want to volunteer, they'll say you have to volunteer. Oh, then you could say, well, okay, well, then it's not voluntary compliance. It's compulsory if I have to volunteer. They'll say, no, no, it's not compulsory. It's voluntary. And then they'll give you this explanation, which is the explanation they gave my dad years and years ago. They say, well, it's like traffic laws, right? You stop at a red light voluntarily, but if you don't stop, then you get a ticket, right? And, and to a lot of people, that makes sense, right? Oh, I voluntarily stop, meaning that there's not a policeman sitting in my car forcing me to stop. I just do it voluntarily, and, but if I don't, I get a ticket. But that's not voluntary. If there is a punishment for not doing something, then when you're, you're not, not doing it voluntarily, right? So when I stop at a red light, right? I'm doing it because I know that if a cop sees me, I might get a ticket. And sometimes, you know, you're at a red light, it's three o'clock in the morning and you're sitting there and you feel like an idiot for sitting at that light. And you're, you're looking around and like, well, should I go? Or what if a cop sees me and you stay there? You're not staying there voluntarily. If it was up to you, you would just go. You're staying there because you might get a ticket. So if there's a punishment for not doing something, then, then it's not voluntary. Voluntary means I can choose to do it or choose not to do it. And there's no negative consequences if I choose not to do it. That's what's voluntary. But the key, the question is, why are income tax laws based on voluntary compliance? Why don't they just say compliance is compulsory? Because the police don't say that traffic laws are voluntary. If you ask them, is, 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 is stopping at a red light voluntary? They say, of course not. That's not voluntary. You're required to do it. It's compulsory. So why is it only the IRS? that claims that compliance with their laws are voluntary, but everybody else that has laws say, well, no, it's mandatory. You got to comply. And it has to do with the, with the Fifth Amendment, right? The Fifth Amendment to the Constitution says that no American citizen can be compelled to give the U.S. government any information that can be used against it, right? It doesn't have, it's not self-incrimination. That's like a privilege that you can claim if you've you know, been subpoenaed to testify, you know, against somebody else or something. But if the government wants information from you to use against you, you don't have to give it to them, right? That, that's the whole basis for the Miranda warning, right? When the police arrest you, they say you have the right to remain silent, but anything you say can and will be used against you, right? So they can't force you to confess. So if a policeman gets you and he Mirandizes you and then you confess to a crime, well, they can use the confession against you because you confess voluntarily, Right. They can't like put you on a rack and torture you and force you to confess, right? Because that's not a voluntary confession. If they're torturing you and then you confess, well, you can't use it, right? That's the whole idea about the Fifth Amendment. And so what the Supreme Court has ruled is anybody who files a tax return is actually a witness within the meaning of the Fifth Amendment. Meaning when I file a tax return, I, I, give, I write all this information and I give it to the government, right? The government can use all that information against me. In fact, it tells you that in, in the 1040. There's like a Privacy Act notice there. And it says any information you give us can and will be used against you. OK, well, what do you know? If the government tells you that any information you give us can be used against you in a criminal trial, well, then are you obligated to, to give it? Of course not. Right. You can't be compelled to give the government information because if you were, they couldn't use it against you. In fact, and this happens you know, quite often, if somebody is charged with income tax evasion, right? And the government takes you to court. They introduce probably the number, the first piece of evidence, exhibit A, is the tax return that you filed. And they try to show that the tax return you filed 
you know, was fraudulent. Either there was income that you didn't report or there were phony deductions that you that you put on the return, but they introduce your return. Now, if you object or if your lawyer objects and says, objection, your honor, um, you know, we object to the introduction of this tax return, right? Uh, because my, you know, you can't use information against my client. My client prepared the return. The judge will rule, well, the return was filed voluntarily. And because it was filed voluntarily, we can use it against you. That's what they do. Except it's not really voluntary because they will punish you now for not filing, right? You could be put in jail, even though there's technically there's no law, right? Because they couldn't put any real penalties for not filing an income tax return. Because if there were penalties for not filing an income tax return, it wouldn't be voluntary. The only way for it to be voluntary is for the, is if there's no penalties if you don't file. Because that's the only way you can get somebody with tax evasion. You have to use their return against them, and you can only use the return against them if it is filed voluntarily. If, you're, if, if people were actually compelled to file a tax return, they can lie all they want. They can write whatever they want on there because it can never be used against them. Because the government cannot use compelled testimony against anybody. But the government got around this by claiming that compliance with the income tax was voluntary. And because it's voluntary, then all the information that you put on the return could be used against you because you weren't required to supply it. Except now they punish people for not filing. They put people in jail for not filing. Therefore, filing is compulsory. So what the state of Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey could do is they could go after the income tax for that reason, right? That it is a voluntary, it's supposed to, filing is supposed to be voluntary. It's supposed to be based on voluntary compliance and self-assessment, if, you know, but it's not, right? There's so many things, there's so many aspects about the income tax that are unconstitutional. I said, everything about the income tax is unconstitutional. I mean, we, you know, if, if you think about it, I mentioned this on the last podcast, once you've given the government the ability to tax your income to any level they want, I mean, we're all slaves of the government. I mean, in theory, Based on the way the courts look at the income tax, the government can take 100% of our income. Every American citizen, the government can take all your income. The fact that the income tax rate is not 100% is a gift from the government. The fact that we have any deductions, mortgage deduction, charitable deduction, that's all a gift from the government, right? So if the government claims ownership to all of our incomes and all we get to keep is what they decide that we're allowed to have, how are we sovereign people? How are we free people? We're living in a, in, in, in a tyranny. This is a gigantic plantation. We're all slaves to an all-powerful government. Do you think the founding fathers, when they created this country, thought they were creating a government with that much power that can basically confiscate the wealth of all the citizens? This is the limited government. And the same thing with the Federal Reserve. We said, you know, the Federal Reserve can print money and buy whatever it wants, buy up all the assets, nationalize everything. So we now have a government that is all-powerful, now, obviously, that can't be legal. That is not what the framers set up, a limited government. I mean, initially, we were operating under the Articles of Confederation. The federal government had no power at all. And then we said, OK, let's give the federal government a tiny bit of power. But let's make sure that we, you know, we bind the, the government in the chains of the Constitution. Well, you know, the states need to put those chains back on, right? Because none of the states would have ratified the Constitution back in, you know, uh, 1790, whenever they ratified it, none of them would have done it had it been, had there been a federal income tax. None of them would have done it had there been a federal reserve. None of them would have done it if they thought that the federal government would ever be able to do anywhere near all the things that it's doing now. So if the states are going to take a stand, take a real stand 
and take a stand that might work and try to bring back right states sovereignty it used to be the united states are right the united states it was the, the states were sovereign they they had come together the united states of america you you were a citizen more of your state than you were of the federal government that is how that is the principle of federalism that is how the country started so that's what these states should be fighting for right fighting to bring the federal government back in check because it has completely grown like a cancer. It has destroyed all the, 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 the chains that bound it. And the states are the ones that need to bind it back up. The states are the ones that need to force the government to uh, live within uh, its constitutionally enumerated powers. Now, the courts are supposed to do that, but the courts have just let the federal government get away with murder. But if the state governments take a stand and they come together, then they could check the power of the federal government. And the courts can't just dismiss their arguments as being frivolous because they're being raised by a tax protester. You have you know, legitimacy when you have state governments constitutionally challenging the authority that has been usurped uh, by the federal government. And the federal government is acting outside of its constitutional authority. And somebody needs to bring them back in the line. And this is their opportunity to do it. Mm-hmm.